You're listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. On today's episode, Professor of Medicine and Director of the HCM Center at Westchester Medical Center in New York, Dr. Shohari Naidu, speaks with Haslam Family Endowed Chair in Cardiovascular Medicine, Dr. Milan Desai. Dr. Desai has come today to discuss an article he wrote for the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, which looks at the long-term outcomes of septal reduction therapies in Medicare patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. For exact details from the study, click the link in the show notes or head to hcmsociety.org slash podcast. All right, let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Naidu. So today I have the pleasure of having Dr. Desai and I have this conversation about an interesting article that came out in Jack earlier this year titled Survival After Subreduction in Patients Greater Than 65 Years Old with Obstructive Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy. This raised some issues about how do we treat these patients and I think we'll also get into how we might treat them contemporarily with the Navicampton era. So Dr. Desai, without further ado, take us through this study and then we can have a nice discussion. Thank you, everybody, and thank you, Hari. So I'm Melinda Sai from the Cleveland Clinic, and I wanted to discuss our paper that was published in JAK earlier this year. Uh, this was predominantly looking at outcomes of obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients greater than 65 years of age or Medicare age population, and tease out the nuances of uh, volume, procedural volume relationships, as well as what are some of the long-term outcomes. As all of us know, about 70% of HCM patients uh, demonstrate dynamic outflow tract obstruction with concomitant mitral regurgitation due to SAM of the mitral valve, resulting in a lot of downstream impacts, CHF, reduced functional capacity, or syncope. In such patients that are intractably symptomatic, traditionally we have recommended doing septal reduction therapies, which are associated with excellent long-term survival, freedom from recurrent symptoms, and improved quality of life, especially if done at high volume center. So as a result, current guidelines recommend alcohol ablation or surgical myectomy to be performed at high volume centers. A recent report that was also published in JAK has shown long-term outcomes. uh, Basically, they have shown that the outcomes are better if you get it done at specialized HCM centers and higher adjusted long-term mortality with alcohol septal ablation compared to septal myectomy. So the objective of the current study was to compare short and long-term outcomes of septal reduction therapies in a contemporary US cohort, nationwide cohort, Uh, and also to understand an SRT volume outcomes relationship. For the study, we chose Medicare beneficiaries who underwent septal reduction therapy. We identified these patients using various ICD diagnosis codes uh, using Medicare provider analysis, the MedPAR files. This was an extensive data set, getting us access to admissions to hospitals, skilled facilities, long-term acute care facilities for one year before the index procedure, and we utilize all available ICD codes to ascertain patients' comorbidities. We also calculated frailty-based score using 100 uh, clinical variables. Along with that, we were able to ascertain death rates 
in 99% of beneficiaries. In addition to that, we also got a bunch of secondary outcomes, including uh, length of stay, in-hospital stroke, kidney injury, requiring dialysis, second, third degree heart block, need for reoperation. So how did the results pan out? 3,680 patients had underwent septal myectomy and almost 2,000 underwent alcohol ablation. Compared to alcohol septal ablation, patients who underwent myectomy were significantly younger, less likely to be women, had lower burden of comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, anemia, heart failure. They also were less frail. Patients in this uh, myectomy group also had lower heart failure admission burden for one year before their procedure compared to those in the alcohol septal ablation group. However, using advanced statistical methodology, we were able to balance both groups uh, using overlap propensity score weighting adjustment. What did the results show? Alcohol septal ablation, um, septal myectomy compared to alcohol ablation had longer length of hospital stay, higher in-hospital mortality, stroke, new dialysis, and 30-day mortality. However, when you look at the long-term survival, alcohol septal ablation had worse survival past two years compared to surgical myectomy. Myectomy was also associated with lower risk for reoperation, newer uh, downstream uh, reprocedures compared to alcohol ablation. And both of them had a significant reduction in heart failure readmission rates. However, we then did some additional analysis and found that out of almost 700 patients, 293 centers performed both procedures, 261 performed only alcohol, I mean, septal myectomy, and 140 performed alcohol septal ablation. For myectomy, there were significant, almost 450 were low volume, doing less than seven myectomies a year. Only three centers did more than 82 myectomies or considered high volume. Similar findings in alcohol septal ablation. There were only uh, 11 centers which did high volume uh, alcohol septal ablations. Unfortunately, 76% of myectomies and and alcohol septal ablations were performed in low volume centers in the lower three tertiles. What we found was there was a significant association. So 30 day mortality significantly improved as the quartile of volumes improved both for myectomy as well as for alcohol septal ablation. And this is shown in an inverse linear relationship for both alcohol ablation as well as septal myectomy. So to conclude, in a large group of Medicare patients with obstructive HCM, both alcohol septal ablation and myectomy result in significant reduction in heart failure readmission. However, lower mortality was observed with myectomy uh, in the long term compared to alcohol ablation. However, despite the important message here was despite evidence of better outcomes in higher volume centers, 75% of SRT procedures are performed in low volume centers in USA, despite the guideline recommendations. So how do we deal with this? I think every provider should have honest shared decision-making conversation about the following with their patient. Is it appropriate to perform an SRT at a lower volume center at all, especially without a trial of Mavacamptin and potential future therapies? Should you be doing SRT procedures only in high volume centers? 
should there be a trial of mavacamptin prior to SRT, even at a high volume center? Are we at a situation where we have a low procedural volume center of excellence paradox in the USA? Have we lowered the bar too much? Higher proportion of alcohol septal ablation patients needed a repeat SRT. Is that because of inappropriate patient selection because of perceived lack of treatment alternatives in the past? Some of these obstructive physiology could be driven by mitral subvalvular apparatus abnormalities, which make alcohol septal ablation less feasible. So I think indeed in the future, we need to compare outcomes between myosin inhibitors and newer therapies and SRT. We have to uh, confirm the safety and long-term uh, uh, outcomes of mavacamptin and other therapies. But we have to take the data of a recently concluded Valor trial, which does show that in the rightly selected patients after 32 weeks, nine out of 10 patients no longer qualified for SRT. I'll stop here and happy to have a additional conversation. Thank you. So I thought this is a fascinating paper. And I think, you know, we're all on the same page here in that uh, we take care of a lot of these patients. We're at, both at centers that do both surgical myectomy and alcohol ablation. I think we've learned which patients should go to one or the other. And we've also learned uh, which, uh, what kind of volume you need to maintain these kinds of outcomes. I'm struck by the fact that these outcomes are nowhere near what we get at centers of excellence. And I think previously, a lot of these centers of excellence data show that mortality is less than 1%. Also that pacemaker is variable with higher in alcohol ablation versus surgery, whereas the pacemaker rates in this study were the same. It gives you an idea that the quality was not as high. And it's not to say that, um, you know, that uh, people are doing a bad job, but rather that we have not done a good job of creating large volume centers and, and, uh, and getting people to send to those centers in general. The other interesting part about this paper is that it's over 65 years of age, which we've been talking about in terms of the Mavic Hampton, in terms of uh, insurance and authorization. That's a whole other can of worms we should discuss as well. But I think from the paper, the important part for me is that overall mortality was about the same, even though it's not as low as we'd like to see uh, in centers of excellence. The decrease in readmissions were striking, 30 to 40, 50% decrease in readmissions, which means both these procedures seem to be working in the heart failure state. Um, I do find it interesting that the mortality was higher, um, uh, end-stage renal disease was higher, stroke was higher, significantly higher in myectomy, and that was overwhelmed later on by an increase in some of these late events in alcohol ablation. So it's hard to understand why that happens. I think part of it is volume in that if you had a better volume, it looks like the myectomy results would be better early, and probably the alcohol ablation results would be better late because of residual gradients. In addition, I do think it's hard to match all these patients because of un unmeasured confounders in selection bias between these. But I think it's interesting also that when you look at only the high volume centers, there was no difference in early and late mortality, which tells us that we really need to focus on volume. And I think when you have high volume, you also do a better job of selecting which one should get myectomy and which one should get alcohol ablation. So you minimize the risks and maximize the benefits. Those are my initial thoughts. I think that overall, these procedures are doing well. There are nuances to both of them, but we have to focus on keeping them high volume. And then I think you're absolutely right. We should also discuss um, whether Mavic Hampton can even the playing, playing field either before or after these procedures. Yeah, agreed. I mean, look, at the end of the day, guidelines are guidelines. They can make recommendations, but I think it is incumbent upon us as uh, the 
community that practices, takes care of these patients to be doing it right by the patients by steering them towards true high volume centers when they do need uh, these high-end procedures. Because all these procedures are nuanced, they require a fair bit of decision-making. More importantly, what I think separates the high volume centers from not so high volume centers is ability to bail out of trouble uh, when you do get into trouble. Uh, so, so I think, you know, all these things have to be taken into account. Uh, and now, as with the advent of cardiac myosin inhibitors and hopefully newer therapies down the road, you, know, you have to ask yourself a question. Do I really want to send a patient of mine to an SRT as a first line? What is it? We have to first decide, A, which patient I'm going to say no drug, you are going straight for search or for a procedure. So we have to identify that. The second situation is we have to be true. I either send the patient to a high volume center or, you know, not or, there should be no or. First, try the medicine. If it doesn't work, then it should be, it should be really a hub and spoke pattern situation. You know, I agree with you. I, I don't think there is any patient, uh, quote unquote, any patient that shouldn't be on medication first. And I'll tell you why. We have not been practicing that way. We've always started patients on beta blockers or calcium blockers or something to see if an initial trial of medication can alleviate the symptoms. And you and I know that in a significant proportion of patients, we do see an improvement in symptoms pretty dramatically within four to eight, four to eight weeks in these patients if it's going to work. So I think that Mavicantin will be a first line because it, it should be uh, a, a conservative approach initially to see if you get the same benefit. That might be different in kids, of course, but we don't have the data there. If it fails or the patient uh, either logistically or clinically, clinically because of side effects, adverse events, or uh, inability to alleviate symptoms, or logistically because the patient cannot tolerate the regimen or the or does not want to be on medications uh, for the for a significant proportion of time, then it's reasonable to select an alternative SRT. That being said, I think the high volume places uh, for each of these know, you know, they don't look at it whether they can whether they can do the procedure. They look at it as whether they can do the procedure and get the desired short and long term efficacy. And so, if you look at it that way, then they will pick the one that will get them the uh, you know the one re the one year result, not just the procedural result. And usually, it's fairly obvious which one is better given uh, differences in anatomy, which include the mitral valve and subvalvular apparatus. And, and, and look, at the end of the day, you know, yes, a lot of these patients are driven by gradients or their symptomatology, but the data is evolving that there may be some fundamental changes happening at a substrate level using some of these novel therapies. So I think, I mean, like LV mass regression, LA volume regression, diastology improvement. So I honestly think, you know, we should, if there are no contraindication, logistic or medical, you know, everybody should, should, should be tried on these things. Now, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, divide the patients into the following bins. One, who don't want an invasive procedure. The other, who don't have access to a high volume invasive procedure placed. And third, you know, who may want to defer getting an invasive procedure for, you know, I just want to, the next five years, if I can get away without surgery, it would be good. So 
it's not a one size fits all uh, approach that we should be in. I think it is though, the way I look at the whole picture is expand the tent of offerings for a given patient and patient is allowed to move from one chair to the other. It's not this chair or that chair. The What we have to be true to the whole situation is as follows. If you do an unnecessary procedure or if you do a procedure in a wall, low volume center and hurt the patient or God forbid, kill the patient, you know, game over. You know, game I, over. I think one of the problems you also mentioned, there's a significant proportion of places that only do myectomy and a significant proportion of places that only do alcohol ablation. And you and I both know that there's a time and a place for both. So that means that there's some surgical centers that are doing surgery on patients who could get a great alcohol ablation and places that are doing alcohol ablation that could get a great surgery or should have a great surgery. And so we have to be true to ourselves that if we can't give the patient the right procedure, they need to be sent to a place that can get them the right procedure that they need. I also think that there's probably two patients I can see that might consider going right to SRT. Younger patients with massive hypertrophy where they're very symptomatic. I don't know if these patients uh, would rather have a myectomy and then maybe we'll see what, what happens to these patients long term. And the other ones are going to be uh, older patients who the polypharmacy of Mavicampton or if they have AFib frequently, it may be difficult to control them without uh, mechanically treating the obstruction, especially since the older patients have just usually focal septal hypertrophy. So those could be them, but the vast majority of patients, I think, probably will start Mavicampton, and then we, like you said, we see. Also, if you start them earlier, like you said, there's mass regression, LA volume index looks down, looks like it's improving. So maybe the real trick of Mavicampton is starting patients earlier so that they don't get the phenotype that requires SRT. That's probably where we need to go. And uh, I think that's where the, the data may be most robust. Yeah, I mean, and we are not there yet, okay? Right. Um, neither one of us should be prom, uh, insinuating that, yeah, the insinuating that in any way. We are not there yet. But that's where the data should and will evolve. And, and, you know, uh, and, you know, we have to work into this, the economics of the whole situation, uh, the logistics, the echoes there, there's lots of things to work towards correct, but, correct. but and that might of, change over time yeah it's sort of when the first automobile rolled out of the factories in detroit you know they were not electric automobiles that were you know look things evolve and we have to evolve our understanding of how uh, how best we are going to utilize it i think that but the key here is to recognize you know as a patient you know, my doctor told me I need heart surgery to shave the muscle off. As a patient, I should be empowered with enough knowledge to ask, how many have you done? What are your outcomes? Can you send me to a larger center who does a lot more of these than one or two of these a year? So a lot of it is, you know, the insurance companies and the out of network and travel and logistics of staying in a larger center, all those things, going to a larger center, all those things have to be worked out. Yeah, and this is where the society can be helpful or the HCM Association can be helpful for being uh, patient advocates. And obviously there's variances in care that we have to address as well because some people are less empowered to do that. Let me address this last point here about SRT, uh, alcohol ablation. I think one of, the, one of the problems with alcohol ablation is you don't always get the, the perfect gradient reduction. You don't always get it with myectomy if it's not done well either. But one of the things with alcohol ablation is there is about a 10% redo rate in general. 
And I do explain it as uh, we try to minimize the first alcohol ablation to try to thread the needle to get the efficacy at the, at the best uh, pacemaker rate safety profile. And so oftentimes we may have to come back about 10% of the time to stage the second one to try to minimize the pacemaker risk. That being said, you know, it could also be a higher rate because of the fact that you know, places are low volume and not doing a great job of targeting the right septum. It is also true that after myectomy, it's a little harder to get a patient to want to repeat procedure. It's similar to bypass after uh, versus angioplasty. You're always going to have more angioplasty uh, than you are going to have repeat surgery because of, you know, nobody wants to go under the knife again. But that being said, I think uh, that is a smaller part of this paper. I think the real take-home message is that we need to focus on volume and, uh, and having, uh, you know, as a society, look to see how we can get patients, you know, the right therapy, be that pharmacotherapy or SRT, uh, and track the outcomes, honestly. We have to, we have to track these outcomes and, and, and have people live up to a certain standard, I think. And, and you know, so you, if you ask me why I chose to go after this population, you know, I wanted to study a real-world American, I mean, you know, a real-world database. I did not just want short-term 30-day outcomes. I wanted what happens in the longer term. And I wanted accurate information about their vital statistics, their death index, et cetera. So, you know, very few populations allow us to do that. And, you know, yes, this is this may not be reflective of an younger typical HCM patient, but if you look at most databases, the average age, you know, Valor study, Explorer study, all these, the average age is 60 years. This is, it's not too far from, from the mean age of this population. So the important thing to me is, in spite of explicit comments in the guidelines about going to an experience center, insurance companies are not mandating that and people are not adhering to what is written in the guidelines. So I think, you know, education, messaging, and holding people's feet to the fire, I think are just important. I think it's important because I think the guidelines assume, and we wrote them, you know, you and I have, uh, have been on these because of the presumed less than 1% mortality with both procedure. And we, we write that in as an expectation, but clearly in the real world, you know, surgery is up to 5%, alcohol ablation is up to 2.5%. These are not what we expected. And so I, I think, you know, people, as they extrapolate the guidelines, they have to assume that in the real world, it's, it's worse than we're saying. And so unless they're going to send those patients to high volume centers, and I don't want it to sound like it's uh, selfish, but rather if you want those results or you need those results, you're going to offer those results to your patients. Those are only results we're seeing at the major centers. Yeah. And so you have to be more truthful about that, everybody uh, to their patients. So with that, I think uh, we can close this up. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed this discussion. Um, and thank you for your time. And please uh, you know, go to the website for HM Society, become a member. And uh, if you like this, tune in for more episodes of In the Thick of It. Yeah, thank you again for joining and listening and hope to see everybody at the scientific sessions for HCM Society. That'll be in Cleveland, my neck of the woods. So That's right. take care. Thank you. That was Dr. Milan Desai and Dr. Shrihari Naidu. For more information on this study, please click the slides in the show notes or visit hcmsociety.org slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.